Welcome to Comic Book Keepers, where we talk about comic book characters, their history, and their impact on our lives. I'm Lance, and today is honestly a really special episode. When we created this podcast, this uh, guest we have on this episode today was actually one of the creators I most wanted to have on the show, just because of all the things that they've done, specifically with particular franchises that I love. Now, you may know him from his endless number of projects and titles, including being the visionary who brought Power Ranger comics to the modern era with Boom Studios, or being the architect of the Massiverse over at Image Comics. Welcome, comic book writer, creator, filmmaker, and founder of the Black Market Narrative Creative Collective, Kyle Higgins. How's it going, Kyle? How's it going? Good. Uh, Thanks for having me on this whatever morning this is this morning. It's Wednesday? Is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? It's Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday. Yeah. How are you recovering from San Diego Comic-Con? Um, it, okay, I guess. Uh, I had a convention the next weekend as well in oh, Raleigh, geez. North Carolina at a four-day show for Galaxy Con, and we had a really big Massiverse presence there. So it was, um, it was. I mean, we literally, my girlfriend and I drove home from San Diego and then like a day and a half later flew out to Raleigh. So I'm still kind of, I'm buried in you know, I think I paid off. I paid all the invoices yesterday that I had <laughs> left, um, but now I still have emails and and um, you know the problem is it gets to a point in your inbox where it's like, oh, the, this is like I because I I like to have like inbox zero, but it's just it just never happens anymore. No, <laughs> but I have like I have like fifteen emails in my inbox, which that seems pretty good. Like that's a nice low number, except each one of them is like at least an hour worth of a project like minimum like and it's just like okay (laughs) this is what this is what convention season uh, although it's kind of like this all the time but this is what convention season definitely accentuates is there an end goal as far as convention season goes like is there a spot you're like this is where i'll finally have some breathing room um if more people buy our books then i don't have to do conventions anymore that's that's i think that's how how it works because the word will be gotten out there uh, no, it's uh, it's different every year, but like this stretch in particular is was always is always a tricky one. Um, last year, C2E2 was in the summer because they were on their off schedule due to COVID a few years prior. So with C2E2 in the summer, oh, and, and Emerald City was in the summer as well. Yeah. We did an insane run last year where we went, let's see if I can remember this. It was like I did... San Diego, Galaxy GalaxyCon Raleigh, C2E2 the next weekend, Emerald City like the weekend after that, and then Power Morphicon the weekend after that. So I had I had a run of like five in a row, and I'd had before that earlier in the same in July when this started. San Diego is obviously I'd had Denver and Fan Expo Chicago was in there as well. So I did like seven in like nine weeks or something and it just it killed me and michael basudel who edits and designs all our books he was he was uh and matt groom were both in the u.s for um a portion of that matt was here for i don't remember which shows it was i'm pretty sure it was oh it was uh c2e2 and um san diego yeah but um but then matt michael stayed for like he did like all six or seven weeks. And so sure. that was, it was, it was tricky because we were running the books basically from the road and there's a lot to manage and yeah. Yeah. So th- this year it's not as many shows. Um, and next year, hopefully, uh, I don't want to say hopefully it'll probably be about as many as this year. Maybe, maybe, if maybe a little fewer. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get a little bit of breathing room. How, how is it like trying to manage writing all of the various books that you're working on while going through con season like what does that look like um it's hard um i've never been very good at it to be totally honest like even on my work my work for hire titles yeah it's 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 tricky you know fortunately on this stuff now like i have a really amazing group of collaborators and people kind of behind the scenes that that help on a lot of stuff um, with regards to making the books and, you know, we run all of our titles through like over G chat. Um, so we're kind of always in communication with each other, like Marcelo and Eduardo and, and myself and Joe Clark on radiant black and our color, our wonderful colorists that have joined. Um, and then the other books, you know, Michael, Michael's more point person on, 
Um, and I'm kind of more of uh, anything from a consultant to a creative director. Um, but I tend to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on all the titles kind of like in different forms at all, all times. But, um, working from the road is tricky because I used to, I used to be able to write on airplanes and I don't know if it's a combination of me getting older, uh, and this, and the leg space getting smaller, yeah. but it's such a crapshoot whether, um, I'll be able to do any actual typing on a plane. So I kind of just don't even plan on that anymore. Um, so that it means every travel day knocks you back as well, because it's, it's not likely you're going to get much done. Um, especially if you're changing time zones, if you're going to the East coast, for example. Um, so I try to have, I, I try to not put myself in positions anymore where it's like artists are waiting on script and I'm like at a convention or going to a convention and it's just like, I have to write pages. Cause if you get any pages done at a show, it's a bonus, but I spent way too many years, like just on, you know, really tough deadlines and working through my own process, you know, when I was doing Marvel, DC and Power Rangers, like where you're at shows and you're just, and this happens to all of us, like every writer I know, like when we're at a con, it, it, it's inevitably someone, if not m more than one person is like, no, nah, I, I got to write tonight. Like I got to go back to the room after the show and like, or we'll, you know, there have been some shows that have been really slow <laughs> and on a Sunday, like we'll kind of sit at our table with our, with our laptop nearby and, and kind of try to get some pages sneakily done, you know, in between, uh, in, in between people that come up for uh to buy stuff or for signings but um it's not ideal i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible that would be that'd be so amazing to think about just one of your favorite creators you're walking by them and they're writing something that amazing that you're going to be reading in the book later or they're writing something that they'll rewrite to make amazing later like that <laughs> often happens uh you know the, the best the best re the best writing is rewriting sort of sort of approach um that is kind of one of the cool things about comics is that the script is only it the script only needs to be as formal as um like the work situation and and relationship with the collaborators is or or requires it to be so like on power rangers every script had to be buttoned up because that was the only way that it could really get through the approval process. Like every line of dialogue that was going to be ultimately in the finished book really had to be in the script, even if we made changes once it came back. Whereas, you know, on some things like, like on Radiant Black, you know, there are, there are definitely sequences that I write. Well, I write a lot of it actually in kind of more of a hybrid Marvel style now where, um, there's dialogue there for sure, but like sometimes there's not, and I'm telling Marcelo kind of what's going to happen. And I do, and I do breakdowns of all the beats. Sometimes I'll actually panel it out and other times it'll just be very clear delineation of the different beats of the scene or of the page, I should say specifically, um, knowing that, okay, I'll be able to, I, I know how to make the scene work and I know dialogue wise, how much I need to fit and things like that. Um, and so what's cool is then, it keeps, you know, Marcelo working and drawing, and then I'm able to come in and kind of laser focus on, um, on dialogue as it's, you know, getting ready to be lettered and then ultimately going to print. Um, so it's funny because growing up, <clears throat> you hear the stories about Stan Lee writing like eight books a month. And, and then you hear the, actually, you know who I heard the story from? It, it wasn't from like personally, but it was in a book, uh, an interview with Chuck Dixon when he used to run the bad office, basically. And by run, I mean, he was writing the majority of the books there. And he was incredibly fast. Like he's kind of really, he's well known for that. And he said that when he was growing up, he basically thought Stan Lee wrote eight books a month, like full script, script everything. So he just kind of like trained himself over and over <laughs> to get to a point where that was possible, not realizing that Stan was doing basically Marvel method, Marvel style. And sometimes it was even more stripped down than that, where he's Stan's getting on the phone with with Jack Kirby or um, Steve Ditko and saying, like, in this issue, I think the Fantastic Four fight the Mole Men and this. Yeah, OK. And Jack goes, well, all right. And goes and lays <laughs> out 22 pages and then Stan's doing dialogue on that later. 
Um, so when I heard that that's how things kind of were made at different points in time, it was always like, how, how could you do that? Like, now I understand it, um, not only from a technical standpoint, but from a, from a logistic standpoint, like you have to find ways to stay ahead and you have to find, you're keeping trains running kind of all the time. Um, and I'd say that's probably the trickiest part of all of this is that, you know, with all the different things we're doing, both things that people know about and a whole host of stuff that people still don't know about and we haven't announced, it's like managing all of that. But then also I'm still writing a bunch of the stuff is those are two different hats to wear at times. And, um, that, that can get tricky, but like I said, fortunately, you know, we have some pretty amazing people kind of around us, Michael Basuto and Ryan Sidoti. I wouldn't be able to do kind of any of this, this stuff without. That's incredible. You, and you do have an incredible team, everyone over at the Masterverse. I'm a big fan of every single one over on that team. I'm curious, kind of going a little bit back to kind of writing on the road. Is there, is there mm-hmm. any story or plot point or idea or concept that you came up with during a time that felt difficult to create that you were really proud of after the fact? Oh, um, yeah. You know, the one that comes to mind, just because I, I think about it a lot for a variety of reasons. I did a convention in Lexington, Kentucky um, for, it was like the Lexington Comic and Toy Fest. And it was the first time I was doing it. This was in the like, what would this have been? Like spring, summer of 2018 because we were doing Shattered Grid and I was re- I was having a really, really hard time with uh, one issue in particular, a script. I think it was issue 27. It was whatever the assault, uh, the assault on Corinth was, mm. wherever that was. It was either 27 or 28. And um, I was at the convention uh, which was predominantly, well, I shouldn't say predominantly, but there was a very large Power Ranger actor um, kind of, you know, collection of Power Ranger actors at the show. So this is the first time that I met Jason Narvi and um, and Pauly. Um, uh, Jason David Frank was there, who I, who I knew quite well by that point. Um, but I met uh, Kat Sutherland and Karen Ashley. Um, I met Amy Jo Johnson there for the first time. Uh, Walter Jones was there, who I already knew. I can't remember if David was there or not, but I was, I was, anyway, it was this kind of surreal experience because this was the first time I had met a number of, you know, these actors who, whether you realize it or not, you do kind of hear their voice as you're working on scenes and working on dialogue of the characters they played. And they could not have been, um, they could not have been sweeter and just just across the board about like the comics and they had been seeing the comics for well by that point we were up to issue whatever i said 27 28 so they'd been seeing the books for over two years and um not only just like that they exist and they're out there but like up close and personal because people are bringing them in their lines to have them autograph them so they were very very um kind and complimentary to what we were doing and the stuff i was writing but behind the scenes, I was like really, really stressed out about this uh, this story. And Daphna, who is my was my amazing editor on the series at Boom, um, you know it's you know it's a tight situation when your editor is messaging. Like, it's not just like on a Friday, like, "Hey, where is it?" It's like then they're like on Saturday and Sunday, like, "No, no, no, I really like where is the, I really need this?" And I was so stuck and. The night, there was a night I was up uh, until like, there was a night I, 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 I stayed up to write after having dinner um, with JDF and, and some, some others. And uh, I remember getting on a, a call with Michael because it was like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and I just like was, it just wasn't working. And so we do this call, and we're just, I'm just trying to talk through what the hell to do in this particular sequence in Corinth. And um, I, 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 I had kind of a germ of something then, and I was like, okay, now, now at this point, now it's like 6 a.m., and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down, 
and I'm going to have breakfast and just kind of like, I need some coffee. Cause now the thing about pulling all nighters, especially as a writer is that it's diminishing returns. Right. Like after like midnight, it's like the same amount of work. Like, sure. You can power through to 6am, but you're getting done about a quarter of the amount of stuff <laughs> that you would have gotten done on a full charge. But it's like, sometimes that's just what you have to do. And so it's like 6am I'm screwed by this point. I'm like, it's 6am on like, I think it's Saturday morning, or maybe it was Sunday morning. And um, I'm sitting down in the lobby having breakfast and I'm working on this scene in the cockpit of the pterodactyl. And it was Jen Scott's and uh, Kimberly in the cockpit talking, the two Pink Rangers kind of. Um, it ultimately became about kind of connecting over loss. But, um, and I'm sitting there, I'm typing the stuff, and now I'm, I'm like, I'm hearing like voices kind of, right? And you're like, you think, you're, you know, you're exhausted and you and you realize, oh no, it's actually just all the, it's just the ranger actors that are around having breakfast now because now it's like 7.30 in the morning because mm. you're just like <laughs> losing time as you're trying yeah. to like work on this. And so uh, Amy Jo came by and I'm literally scripting a scene with Kimberly and she's one of the ones that I, I that's the one of the clearest voices that I have in my head for the character just because it's so you know, so synonymous, synonymous with her, like, uh, I mean, they all are, but, but that in particular, like the Kimberly, like the inflection of the voice, all of it. Right. And, um, and so Amy and I started talking, uh, and again, we didn't, I didn't know her, um, but we started talking about, she's a director and we were talking about directing stuff and lenses and things like that. But I did have this kind of like weird, surreal moment where I was like, if I type it, will you say it? Is that how this works right now? In this weird feedback loop of like, actors and scripting and no sleep that must be how that works right uh so it that is not how that works by the way just for <laughs> anyone who was wondering but um but it was something out of that conversation uh and it wasn't even a big thing but there was something in that conversation that i went oh right and then i kind of found what in the, i found my through line in that issue that ended up um just being what i kind of like built everything around. And again, it wasn't even anything that was specific to the to the universe or the story of the characters, anything like that. It was just sometimes when you're talking about something you're working on, like things can kind of unlock. And so Daphne called me, I got something into her and she called me and because I was still having, we were still some issues with it. And I stepped off the, off the show floor and we, and she and I had this call and she could not have been more supportive because she knew kind of where I was at and what I was struggling with. And so she did the thing that is hard for editors to do, I imagine, um, but it's something that I understand now being on the other side of it, which was she was able to set aside kind of the logistics and editor had about like, hey, this like we're really like it's we're really up against it now schedule wise. She was able to set that aside to like talk through it with me creatively. And uh, and again, it's the 11th hour, you know, and so we found something and there was a bit in there with Corinth, uh, and it was the idea that two, two Zacks go in. That's what it was. It wasn't, that wasn't the Corinth beat. It was the, the coinless world. Two Zacks go in and only one comes out. And we found that in this moment as I'm standing off, you know, and I can kind of see Walter around. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to tell Walter that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So that's probably that's a long story, but that's probably the the most surreal kind of, you know, art affecting life, affecting art, um, trying to write on the road uh, bit that I have. Yeah, that's that's a really cool story. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Power Rangers, like the boom iteration of Power Rangers did such a great job of taking the feelings that we had watching the show as a kid and, and like mm -hmm. elevated that content and made it mm -hmm. to where you could be reading these stories again, but it didn't feel like the campy side of the show that it is, which which is great. Mm -hmm. But it's also nice to now being a little bit older to also really being able to enjoy those heroes that I had as a kid. And mm -hmm. you had talked about a lot of these actors that played Rangers getting to read the comics. And I'm curious, I also want to mention this, like we, we recently lost Jason David Frank, which mm -hmm. is just, a huge blow to the entire community and love to him and his family. We miss him greatly. I'm curious, how did Jason react to your creation of Lord Draken? Well, it was, 
you know, it was something that he was pretty excited by when we did it um, and enthusiastic about. Like, I met Jason. So I met Jason originally at C2E2 like years ago. And it was one of those stories that kind of a lot of people who've met Jason have, which was that um, I was at the show. Um, so this would have been probably 2012, maybe 2013, because I was doing all the the DC work, all the Nightwing stuff and everything. Um, but I think I was writing a Wolverine one shot at the time, because um, I remember at the, the show was wrapping up <clears throat> and I'd been a huge Power Ranger fan as a kid, but you know I didn't keep up with it anymore or anything like that. Over the years, I had always kind of like poked my head, you know, 1 a.m. on YouTube. It's like, whatever happened to, you know, and you're and yeah. you're looking stuff up and you're watching old clips and, oh, that's what they did, that sort of thing. But I uh, I saw every, it was a Sunday. Everything was wrapping up. I'd wrapped my gear and I was getting ready to walk out and I could see Jason at the end of his table and there was no one around. And he was talking to like handlers and stuff um, or people that had been working the line and everything and taking pictures and everything. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go say hi. I'm going to introduce myself. So I went over. He could not have been cooler. Uh, he was getting ready to leave. And he saw me and he like doubled back to ask, if, you know, if just to say hi or what I needed. And then I was like, no, 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 it's all good. Like, or maybe it was the handlers who were like, no, no, he's done. He's done. But he saw me. He's like, hey, what's up? Like, what, what can I do? And I was like, hey, man, you know, I just wanted to say hi. My name's Kyle. I, I write comic books and right for dc and marvel and because I, I remember saying wolverine he's like oh I fucking, he's like i love wolverine and um and that was it it was a great interaction and then um a couple years later as i was doing the books um i had met aaron shanky who does the bat and the sun stuff and so aaron was like you should meet jason and i was like well we met in passing but he's like no no, no. he's like we're gonna film a thing at um collector's paradise in winnetka He's like, come out, come, you know, come meet him, say hi. So I did. And so Jason and I spoke then and exchanged numbers. And then we just stayed in touch after that. And so um, he was really, really supportive of the books and what we were doing. And, you know, we did this. It was actually his idea to do a big live action promo for Shattered Grid as Lord Draken. And uh, so we figured out how to do it where it could be additive to the story um, but also prove is something of like kind of a, I don't want to say a proof of concept, but like there was an idea after that, that we were then, you know, talking to Saban about before Hasbro bought everything about doing this much larger, um, digital series that set in the world, the coin list and everything. And so we had a bit of traction with it. And then, you know, as it happens yeah. when brands are acquired that it didn't work out. Um, but during that time and during Shattered Grid and everything, like um, he and I were super close. And so, you know, he was he would just ask for the books to read. Um, and so I would send him stuff kind of all the time. And uh, yeah, we we, you know, we lost touch or had a falling out or um, I wouldn't even frame it that way. But, you know, during covid, um, you know, I hadn't talked to him in in a couple of years when certainly everything happened. It was a you know, very, very hard, challenging time. And I can only imagine what it has been like for his family, you know, but, you know, they, they are very much in my thoughts and, and all of our collective thoughts. Um, you know, we, there was a little, uh, some, some of the actors put together a little um, kind of get together in LA, um, you know, a day or two after um, everything happened. Um, and that was really nice um, to see some people again and for us all to kind of you know share some stories and reminisce and um but um but yeah i mean um he it was fun because some of the draken stuff too came out of what my favorite version of tommy was as the dark green ranger you know yes. and i i just felt like it was there was it was cool to see Jason kind of embrace that again in a new way. Um, so it's a bummer that, like I said, like a larger thing didn't end up coming to be. But um, at the same time, you know, moving on from that stuff is where Radiant Black comes from and it's where their um, Legend of the White Dragon comes from. And so it is that is kind of that is something that happens when you work on 
um, you know, established brands like that is you do the best, you do the best work that you can and want to do. And, and in Rangers, I was very fortunate in that I had a story. I came in with a story to tell and I was able to tell it. And then I was able to tell an even bigger one, um, ultimately with Shattered Grid. Um, that was also a part of the story that I was coming in for the year one to tell that was centered on like Green Ranger year one. And then what became Lord Draken was kind of the, you know, that's the cautionary tale that Tommy has to overcome in year one to feel more fully a part of the Rangers. Like he belongs and he can do this not only to them, but to himself. And so having everything built from that core made it easier to expand. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, a it was a couple years of my life that I'll, you know, I'll always, uh, always think back on. That's incredible. With Power Rangers, you also wrote for Marvel with The Rise of Ultraman mm -hmm. and then creating Radiant Black. So clearly you have a big influence with the henshin. So like the transformation style of characters coming from mm -hmm. like a like a tokusatsu style of art. Where did that interest in this style like so the henshin, the tokusatsu, like where did that start for you? Um, probably, I mean, with Power Rangers, like I became aware of Super Sentai and then ultimately Kamen Rider and Ultraman because all the footage for Power Rangers was coming from somewhere. And so even as a kid, you were aware or you would hear or read about how they made the show and where this footage came from. And there was this Japanese show out there in the form of Super, Super Sentai. So in 2018, as I was leaving the book and wrapping up Shattered Grid, we put on at, at Morphicon that year, we put on a live table read um, called Shattered Grid Live. Um, and that was when actually, uh, we brought back like, gosh, it was like it was something like 15 actors from the show, oh, wow. all to perform, to play the, their parts again, scenes from the book as we built this experience at Morphicon set to artwork. Ron Wasserman did some new music and everything. I brought in all this hardware, these, this Yamaha gear from the nineties to do the Zordon voice live for everyone. So David Fielding did the Zordon voice again, live for the first time in you know, since he'd done the show really. Wow. And, um, I, I ended up like t the whole, the whole experience was pretty surreal because I, Jason was supposed to do it, JDF. Uh, and then he was in and then he was out and then he was in and then like 30 minutes before the show, before we were doing it, he was out. So I had to go find, so I, I, I talked to Jason font the day before going, Hey, this might happen. I know this is a weird ask and position, but he's like, absolutely anything, you know, for you guys and, and Jason. And so Jason Font ended up filling in and doing it all cold. And I also like tore my, finished tearing my ACL getting on stage cool. and I fell and Dan Southworth and um, I'm forgetting his name. He plays Lightspeed Red, like caught me. Um, and I thought I just dislocated my knee and it popped back in because it had happened once before. And and I was like, just, it'll be, be like 20 minutes and it'll stiffen up. I won't be able to move, but like we're good until then, you know? And, and so it was this like out of body experience of like running right. this thing. Sorry, I, I got on, what was, what were we talking? <laughs> I got on this path and I, I forgot what we were, what we were. Uh... It, was, it was just about like your introduction to like. Oh, oh, right. So, yeah. So we do all this and it goes um, very well. And it was like a very nice kind of ending to my time. This was cause like a, a week before the final issue of Shattered Grid came out. So it was like a nice way to kind of, and my time with Rangers. Barbara Gordon did Rita again for all these scenes that I wrote in the book, which was amazing. And um, so then I get home and uh, Matt Groom and Michael Basudel were here and uh, they were staying with me for a few days. And they're the ones that like got me into uh, into more toku. So as they were explaining to me what the season of uh, Jew Ranger does, which is the season that Mighty Morphin Power Rangers comes from, and what Ultron, or sorry, what uh, what Titanus, Ultron, what Titanus, uh, the Megazord and the Dragonzord represent as kind of like the Holy Trinity, and it was just like, whoa, okay, there's there's, and they walked me through a lot of like what the season does and explores, and it's like, whoa, this is. I'm really interested in this. And so we watched the pilot and recorded a, a, a talk for their podcast uh, after watching the pilot cold. Um, and so that was kind of really the beginning. And then I was able to get into more 
uh, like I said, more, more Sentai, more Kamen Rider, um, really fell in love with Kamen Rider. I'd seen some of it mm-hmm. for certainly, but I, I did a deep dive on Kamen Rider build um, after Tom Brevoort, who is the exec editor at Marvel. Uh, Tom recommended Kamen Rider build as a really good like entry point, uh, contemporary entry, entry point. And so, yeah, it just, it came, it just kind of came organically from that. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm incredibly well-versed in, in, in it or in all of it. Um, but it's nice as a, both a lifelong superhero fan, but also as a writer who has made a living writing in a lot of cases, his, his favorite characters for the last, you know, 15 years, um, that kind of joy for that stuff isn't the same anymore. Mm. Um, those characters. So it is really nice to find something that I'm able to kind of be a fan of again. And the storytelling sensibilities and style and everything is so different from what we typically do, not only in American comics, but American superheroes. And so it's cool just to, I don't know, it's, it's nice to find something that's, um, that feels kind of, um, fresh and exciting to me again. I, I was going to ask this question, but now I think I kind of got my answer with Common Writer was, was going to be if you had the opportunity to write another comic of, of this style, because obviously we have we're going to talk about the Massiverse and you have all those original characters. <laughs> but if there was already an existing IP, would it be Common Writer that you would want to write or is there another no. tokusatsu? No, it probably honestly, it probably wouldn't be, you know, they re- someone reached out about it at, at one point um, and it just wasn't the right fit. Uh, for for me but um that's the thing it's like it would have to be the right fit and you know i'm at a point now fortunately career-wise where i'm doing more of my own stuff but i'm also doing stuff like i said behind the scenes that people don't know about yet um there are some books and some other projects that i'm kind of running creative directing that uh are comics or comics related but they're um, they're kind of a whole different thing, and no, they're not NFTs. That's not what I'm. It's <laughs> not, not what I'm alluding to. I appreciate the clarification. <laughs> There's some projects I'm building uh, that are, yeah, I, it sucks. I can't really say anything more. You'll hear about one of them in the next few months, um, and I think it'll make a little more sense. But you know, I'm I'm fortunately quite you know full like workload wise, but also it would really have to be the right thing for me to come and build out something on another brand again. Right. And there is, I've said this, so I don't, I don't think I'm, I've kind of said this publicly, so it's, it's probably not, it's fine. Like the Ninja Turtles are probably the last thing that like I would really want to do in some big meaningful way. Um, just because it's the only, they're the only brand I haven't really touched that I still love. Like I would love to write Spider-Man proper, you know, one day or, you know, X-Men stuff, but it's not stuff that I like. It's, it's actually stuff that I would, I'd be okay turning down at this point because it really does have to be the right, the right fit. Um, but turtles is like, that'd be hard to turn down turtles. <laughs> if that yeah. opportunity were to, were to come around. I would love to read your iteration of the turtles. I think that would be incredible just because you do such a good job about building out the team and relationship with the characters, mm-hmm. which we see with power Rangers, which we saw, which we're currently seeing with everything going on in the massiverse. So being able to bring those human elements to, or those, um, yeah, human elements to the turtles would be incredible to see as well. I'm curious now, when did the entire concept for Radiant Black start to to form and, and develop? Um, well, it's kind of in two different stages. Um, I guess three. There, there were like kind of three, there are three bits that ended up kind of connecting. The first was what I was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, with regards to doing a big, um, you know, over-the-top series for the coinless. Um, and when that wasn't going to happen, you know, Jason and I were talking a lot about, like, let's build something, let's build something else. Like, I can build something entirely whole cloth. Like, this is literally what I do. And so I started thinking on something that um, was very, very, very different than what Radiant Black ended up becoming. Um, but it was like this, you know, this like thing, like far, dy- like post tech dystopia, 
uh, in fiefdom cities and all this in coyotes moving people from between places. And I, the iconography of, of something that pops up was going to be a miniature black hole. And the title was called Radiant Black. And I just, I knew, I was like, ooh, that's I like that title. And I like the iconography of the miniature black hole. And part of it is because as a director, coming from a directing background, um, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about black holes, like depending on the angle, they they would look the same to camera Mm. kind of from all directions. And I was like, that's an interesting, like you could do something interesting with that in live action with tracking shots and stuff. And it might just be this kind of, slightly ethereal kind of element that that could be interesting but that didn't end up you know i i we kind of like put, i put that on hold and i i told jason at one point i was like you know i'm gonna pull this back and and figure out i don't you know i'm i don't know what i'm gonna do with this but i don't think i'm gonna like pursue there's no money in doing a digital series either that's the mm. thing yeah um it's like who watches that where does that go especially an original thing so so that's the beginning of that and then i was gonna do something at um god i can't even was at dc i want to be careful what i say only because uh it was a it was a pitch i was working on for one of my favorite editors who's not there anymore but i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to (laughs) like pitch the whole concept if if he ends up doing something with it later but i'll say this there was a component to the pitch that involved um like a mid-20s or late 20s kid person who is laid off from uh wayne wayne enterprises like on page one and he has to move back in with his parents in the gotham suburbs and then i had the whole thing what that was is what i don't want to pitch in case he ends up yeah yeah of course with it down the line but there was that component as well and then i was going to do this thing that had started as maybe a digital series uh as a comic as a little six issue thing uh, with Kian Torme, who is a crazy great artist at DC right now. And um, and then at New York Comic Con uh, that year, so this would have been 2019, like early October 2019, it, he got some other, he got, he was getting more work from the bad office. And we had a conversation which was like, well, look, dude, if that's the run you want to take, like now's the time to do it. Like no harm, like don't worry about it. No harm, no foul. Like, and so he started taking more bat work. And so then this thing, I was like, well, now I really don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it wasn't a priority. I was working on a bunch of other stuff and Ordinary Gods and uh, my jazz book, Deep Cuts, and like Infernal Girl Red behind the scenes um, and some other things. And then after New York, um, Eric Stevenson, who's a publisher of Image and uh, I'm, I'm quite close with, Eric and I were texting and he he said, oh yeah, by the way, he's like, have I ever asked you if you'd have any interest in building an original superhero and I was like well what what do you mean and he said well like not a Batman or a Superman analog but like something contemporary think of it as like optimistic sci-fi if you don't want to actually think of it as superheroes you know but I was like well man I would kill to do something like that but I assume there's no market for that and he kind of walked me through where things were at as he saw them and and um, he very much thought there could be And so uh, suddenly kind of everything kind of clicked in place where it was like, well, look, if I'm going to build something, I don't know if you can't pick your hits. That's something that Kirkman says all the time, but you can hopefully put yourself in a position where you don't hate a thing if it becomes a hit. And so I decided, (laughs) you know what, I've got a big swing in me here. And, um, you know, because I tend to take them every few years. And what I mean by that is like, like in 2016, I built out a, a crazy big short film that was that was a new directing you know opportunity for myself that could hopefully lead to some other stuff feature wise and um and then shattered grid and doing the short tied to shattered grid and how do we make that and finance that and everything else and um and so now it was like this was 2019 and I'm going okay I have I have another one in me and if I'm going to do it I'm going to really do it and so I decided to kind of I kind of took elements from all those different places that I just mentioned and the idea of basically writing about my greatest fears, which is like a writer in crippling credit card debt who has to move back (laughs) in with his parents. And and I was like, I'm going to set it in my hometown because there's the story is not about me, but there's a lot of me in the story. But that's also kind of the point. And and um, and just built it from there. 
Um, and then once we, once I started, I couldn't stop. And so Marcelo, when he came on, he nailed the costume design within the first two passes. And it was like, literally I stopped in my tracks. Like I was in Nova Scotia doing a convention and I was like stopped on the streets when I got the, and I texted to Eric, I texted to all my friends. I was like, we look at, look at this. And it was what became radiant black. And the second we had that is when I knew it's like, okay, I think this is going to work. And and so, yeah, we just built it out. And while that was also going on, um, Eric told me, he's like, by the way, he's like, feel free to mention this, that, you know, original superheroes and images, he's interested. Feel free to mention this to, to anyone that you think would be a good fit. First person I call was Ryan Parrott. Mm-hmm. I explained this thing to him. He, he loves image. He grew up on image. He's like, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? I'll have four pitches to you tomorrow, you know? <laughs> and uh, a few days later, actually, he and I went to go see a, a football game. It was a, I think it was USC Stanford at the Coliseum. And on the train to the stadium, he's like, so I have this thing. And he pitched, it was called Dark Sun at the time, but he pitched me the concept for what is Rogue Sun. And like on the spot, it's like, I could see it. It was like, that's going to work. I was like, that's great. And so we started, I found Abel and um, at the time it was Chris O'Halloran uh, on colors to join and Becca Carey. And I facilitated it to image and, and, and helped that helped it through the process, getting it going at image. And then uh, Michael came on and while that was going on, Infernal Girl Red was happening. And so when the first issue of Radiant Black, I don't even know if it had come out yet, but we knew the numbers and we knew where it was trending and everything. And it was like a Saturday night and I had this idea and I, I, jumped on a zoom with Matt, Michael and Ryan. And it was like, it was kind of like, it felt a little bit like a beautiful mind moment where I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure rambling, but I was very passionate going like this, we can do this. We can do this as a line, as a universe, the books are and Michael's brilliant point. Like all the books should be siloed. They're not connected. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there going like, there's a brass ring sitting there. Like, like, why don't we go and try to take it? And like, let's build out. We're going to be the first books out of the gate. And we didn't know if there were other superhero books coming from other creators that weren't in our little collective or not. Um, and so we decided, like, I don't want to invalidate image superhero universe. I'm not saying we're not in the image superhero universe. It's just we're playing nicely together, the three of us here with Supermassive and then tearing out the way we tiered it out. Uh, and then the name, the Massiverse, kind of just came up organically out of that. So it's... You know, I think it actually started on on a Discord server, but it's something that, uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of it happened organically, and now now we have a universe. <laughs> yeah, we have a universe, and I'm very busy. <laughs> yeah, well, Masterverse is so cool because, like you said, it, it's siloed, so each you can read each of these series. You don't have to read all of them, but it also it, it they gel very nicely and also having the the mass the super massive books where everyone comes together is just so much fun to read through. You had mentioned about like the filmmaking side of things. So I know that you studied film and creative writing at the University of Iowa and then you went to a program for film production later mm-hmm. on. How do you feel that education has impacted your writing as a comic writer like the the visuals like how you see things in your mind as you develop a story yeah i don't know it's i only ever wrote growing up and in high school and even in early college i only ever wrote so i would have material to direct and then the film that i made in college you know got got some really nice attention uh when I graduated because it did the rounds around town. And this was, I put it out publicly in 2009. So this was still an era where, you know, you could like a big short could definitely get some attention. And, um, you know, I had all this kind of momentum as a young director and everyone was just kind of waiting for me to bring in a script that I wanted to make. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. You know how many pages that is? Like, (laughs) That's a lot of, that's so many words. Uh, And I ended up kind of out of fear. I kind of burned that momentum. And for many years, I was really, really frustrated with myself as a result of it. And I felt like I had this opportunity and I just couldn't capitalize on it. And then it went away. Uh, While that was happening, I was making comics because that's where 
I was getting some traction and, and I always loved comics and, um, it's also like, who's going to turn down Batman, you know? Right. Um, the thing that happened through that process though, was that I became a much better writer. You know, I've written full time since 2010. So like, if you don't get better at it, like you're doing something wrong yeah. if you're writing that much. And suddenly like this tool, this writing tool that was just in my toolbox because I needed it to have an excuse to go make things. Suddenly that became like the sharpest tool in my toolbox, um, which made everything, has made everything better. Um, it takes pressure off you as a director in any way, because it all starts, if the script isn't there, then nothing else really matters. Um, but it also has kind of like, you know, it's, it's the two hand in hand very much form the identity of what to me, black market really is. There's a certainly comics, but there's this other component that really is in some ways you could argue just my excuse to, and, and my excuse to do all the stuff I like doing, which is, um, directing and, and, uh, you know, building out experiential stuff and kind of outside the box storytelling stuff and things like that, music and all these different interests of mine. But I would say that comics made me certainly made me a better director working with the amount of amazing collaborators and illustrators over the years. Um, definitely change the way that I shoot. But I would say that the way that I write and structure tends to still come from kind of a filmmaking background where, you know, the way that I like to break scenes, um, the way that I like to cross cut, uh, you know, that all comes out of, you know, this filmmaking background. So I think the two really do kind of go hand in hand for me, like they inform each other. It's been a blast to read through your iteration of these original characters and Radiant Black and all of the massive verse books really are pushing progress of comic book, what comic books can be forward because we're getting things like your black light issue, the, the fold out. I think it was radiant black 18. That's yeah. like the Wendell storyline of you can fold it out and you can read it through four different time periods in his life and mm -hmm. seeing how there's parallels and the changes. You also get to have like a choose your own adventure with Ryan Parrott writing rogue son in over in no one we get that in world podcast with pat oswald and is it evan rachel wood uh rachel lee cook rachel lee cook sorry about that rachel lee cook uh and now moving even more forward is as we hit issue 25 for radiant black and a little bit of spoilers forward for anyone that hasn't been reading it so you are warned there was a vote that went out about who should be the sole a user really of the radiant of, of radiant black, whether it was going to be Nathan or Marshall, there was this big reveal in the issue that the answer is yes and no really for both because 25 a and 25 B end with the other individual being that user of the radiant black. So when, when you came up with this idea, what was the reaction of everyone about thinking splitting the radiant black into two separate like parallel storylines. Well, I think the thing to give context on first is where that's heading for listeners. So what we revealed at San Diego, so, let me rewind a little bit. So yes, we did do a vote and it's a QR code because secretly for, I shouldn't say secretly, but for the last two years, the book that I have been building is actually the whole time been a two hander. It's really about this relationship between these two disillusioned millennial best friends whose lives have not turned out the way that they thought or hoped they would. Um, and as they're coming to terms with their own feelings of, you know, whether it's inadequacy or not living up to potential or take, take your, your pick, um, this opportunity, this radiant comes into their life, their lives, this opportunity to do something meaningful. And while Nathan sinks with the radiant first, Marshall, the, um, the, you know, small doses, best friend who hasn't left their hometown, he takes on the mantle after Nathan, um, dies, I guess I can say, uh, yeah. he does technically die in issue four. Um, but anyway, the point being that as these two friends are navigating their own relationship, they're also navigating the fact that they can both 
wield the powers for a period of time, but the Radiant's not designed for that. And so at the end of issue 24, which was our second issue inside existence, our existential black hole realm, uh, where we where we do the issues, we do a special edition of the issue with fluorescent Pantone inks. So the entire comic is a blacklight comic. The final moment of that issue revealed that only one of them will be able to be radiant black forever, kind of continuing on for the duration of their life. Um, and readers have to decide. And so it's a QR code sending readers to this vote that we did for for a month. And the answer was supposed to come in issue 25. And we did give the answer, sort of. So we normally have an A cover, a B cover, and a C cover. At certain points, that C cover has... At certain points, our variant covers have been incentive covers, you know, a 1 in 10 or a 1 in 25, meaning stores need to order 25 copies to get one copy of this, you know, David Finch uh, cover, for example. Going into the Catalyst War, we stripped it all back, though, by design to two covers, an A cover and a B cover, and together they create an interlocking image. And what I've said is that, and this is true, the desire for that, or like the re- the, the thinking behind that is really comes from my kind of directing and filmmaking background and love, which is like, it's an event. I want each month's cover. I want like a landscape poster for every month of the event, you know, and so A cover, B cover, create it. But the real reason is because, as you just alluded to here, we actually created both endings where the characters choose Nathan and the characters choose Marshall. And we published the, the ending where the characters choose Marshall under the A cover. And we published the ending where the characters choose Nathan under the B cover. And um, we, we told some retailers, but we didn't tell anybody else. And so the twist is that for reasons that are central to what the Catalyst War event is, um, both timelines coming out of issue 25 are still alive and active. And so the secret of the Catalyst War is that it's actually an event told across timelines. So for the next five months, we're actually continuing both timelines under the A cover and B cover as disparate time branches. And again, the how and the why is at the center of the event itself. By the end of issue 30, uh, you will know who won the vote. Uh, and that's that's kind of the, the extra twist of it all. So you you have to you really do need to read both issues. I'm sorry, uh, but it's it's I understand if that's too much uh, for for some readers. Uh, totally understand. But it's a story that I've been building to for over two years. And um, this is the way that it was really important to me that we tell it. Um, and it plays with the medium and the form in a way that no one's ever really done before. Um, and uh, doing it now, I can tell you uh, why, because it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's, it's one of those ideas that felt central to the concept and um, experimental for a reason, like without getting into it. Um, so, so what was the reaction? I mean, Michael told me I was crazy. He told me no, uh, but that's how most of our conversations go. They start with, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if, and they go, no, Kyle, that will kill us, Kyle. No, we can't, we can't do that. Um, and you, he's right. Uh, but you know, we're, 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 we're running on fumes here, but we're still running. Um, I pitched it to Eric uh, Stevenson in like June of 2021, so like two years ago, um, and he he was in. But it's been you know it's it's hard to do. It's hard it's hard to coordinate and and also it's hard to keep the secret. Um, yeah. It's hard to write. You know, for it to work, you have to write. Both characters really need to have an argument for why they're the better radiant or why they should be radiant black. Um, and it's not only an argument for amongst them, you know, that they have, but readers need to feel reasons uh, for both as well. And so, um, so yeah, so here we are. We're part one just came out. Uh, we're getting ready to send part two to the printer. So it's a little delayed, um, but we're making two books a month right now with two separate art teams. So it's a lot <laughs> to, to coordinate and manage. And right. I personally am extremely excited to read both of these branching timelines. And I know a lot of people are also very excited because it's something so unique 
to the comic medium and mm-hmm. being able to think about where things are going. It just, I know it has a lot of people excited for it. As we're, as we're kind of wrapping up, I actually had one of our uh, friends, his, so his name is Mason, he's from Alpha Comics. He actually sent me a question after he found out that you were coming on the show. He's like, you, you need to ask this question to Kyle because I need to know, when can we expect Massiverse action figures? <laughs> Does Mason want to write a blank check? Uh, I can ask him. If he wants to write a check, I mean, we could have figures to him within, th- I think it's five months is a turnaround time. Um, <laughs> no, it, figures are incredibly hard to do and to do well. Just so everyone knows, like the stuff that we've done thus far, we are doing it ourselves. So all the stuff we're making, it's us figuring out how to do it and then doing it. Um action figures is something we are all we all want to do but um you know we've explored different possible paths the reality is we're just not big enough we're not a big enough brand yet to warrant something like that at the 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 level of quality that we would all want them to be at so i'm not interested in putting out you know i mean there's a bunch of figures out there right now and and it's just like it's kind of like comics. There's there's way too many books. Um, that's just the reality in in the the market, and it's like your stuff has to be real, real good and on point to catch people's attention or to cut through the noise. And I feel the same with stuff like figures. Um, the other thing to keep in mind too is like if you're if you're talking about doing something like action figures as a licensing deal, for example. You better be sure that or be confident that your brand can um, sustain that because if you do something like that and it doesn't work, other licensing deals will not happen as a result. Like if you do something too early like that. Um, so we're, we're, we're taking our time and, and like I said, we want to find the right fit, whether we do it ourselves or do it with a partner. Um, we'll see. But um it is the other thing is that it's there's an opportunity cost to like all of this stuff and uh as we've just talked about here like we're stretched pretty thin at the moment so Mm -hmm. it's you know it's it's something that i don't think we would look at in any meaningful way until next year at the earliest well you hear that mason you got to wait a little bit longer (laughs) unless unless mason wants to write a really big check and then we can we can hit the ground running (laughs) Perfect. Let's just, all right, somebody really rich, reach out to Kyle Higgins so we can get action figures for Radiant Black and everyone else in the Massiverse. Kind of along those same lines as waiting for the perfect fit. Last San Diego Comic Con, I asked you about if there was going to be any like board game for Massiverse. And I'm excited because this San Diego Comic Con, during the panel for Massiverse, you actually announced the super massive or or the massiverse card game through pocket paragons do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what this game is um so it's a two two player card fighting game um it's it's matches last from three minutes to 15 minutes so it's super fast um you can play it anywhere uh we gave out a san diego san diego exclusive uh two pack of Radiant Black and Rogue Sun from our upcoming uh, box of eight characters that Soulless Game Studio, who uh, is Pocket Paragons, um, they'll be doing a Kickstarter for that box of eight uh, later this year. It was an opportunity that came up actually at San Diego last year for the first time. Um, so we took a meeting, Matt, Michael, and myself took a meeting with uh, with Chris, uh, who runs Soulless, and he demoed the game for us. And we all we all saw kind of how cool it could be, um, especially as it could be really tailored towards our individual characters. So the thing about it is that it's it's not a card per character; it's a set of cards per character. So you have an art card that is the character you're playing as, uh, and then you have these different moves that you you know you. You take you're facing your whoever you're playing against and you put a card down and they put a card down and then you flip them over and you sort out who you know 
who damaged who, you know, did this person rest and you actually delivered a, a killing blow and because they're resting, you actually win the game, which spoiler alert, that's what sold me on the game because I executed <laughs> Michael and I will never let him forget it. Play the man, <laughs> not the cards, as as we like to say. Um, but it's a very intuitive uh, game. It's, again, because it was able to be the, those guys... Um, uh, Brian McKay is the, the main game designer. They really built the game system. They tailored the game system to our characters and found ways to build new game mechanics in some cases to really utilize what makes some of our characters unique, um, which was awesome. It, it blew us all away. And so all of the, the, the card art for like the different moves and, and things like that, those pieces of art all come from the individual books. But then the main character art and the box art is actually being done by uh, Dan Mora. Sweet. So cool. I have scanned the QR code that comes with this pack that talks about how to play the game. I'm very excited to play it with some of my friends. And mm -hmm. you were kind enough to give me an extra one at the convention, which we are going to be doing a giveaway through through our, our Patreon feed. So one of our patrons is actually going to get the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive two pack for this game. So very excited to give that away. Kyle, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to do this interview and come on the show. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about or let the our listeners know about? I think the only other thing is just to to give a plug to No One, which is our 10-issue true crime superhero uh, series set in the Massiverse. I like to describe it as like a, a true crime superhero experience because each issue basically takes place the week it comes out in, although we've had some issues slip a little bit here, so that's not quite the case anymore. But in the grand scheme of things, it, it'll it all work out um, because there's the backdrop to the book is this accountability killing movement that has started in Pittsburgh because of this digital hacktivist named No One who doxes these four very corrupt people. And then uh, nothing happens. And so months later, someone starts killing them on their own. And that sparks this kind of larger movement in the city. And so two of the characters, the reporters who are talked or who are covering this for the paper, the Pittsburgh Ledger, they're talked into starting a podcast by the new media division to chronicle the investigation. And so we make that podcast every month, as you, you mentioned earlier with Rachel Lee Cook and Patton Oswalt. But we also, there's a level of immersion between the two um, that is quite high. So as there are some things that she's going to name in the upcoming episode, for example, that then have a direct effect on where the story goes in the book. Um, you hear scenes from the book that were recorded. You see them being recorded in the book. You then hear them performed on the podcast. Um, so we have an amazing voice, uh, voice roster on this. Rachel Lee Cook, Patton Oswalt, Todd Stashwick, Yuri Lowenthal, Tara Platt, Lauren Lester, David Blue. I mean, it just kind of keeps going on. So the other thing we do is that all those, when I mentioned no one doxed these four people. So we've made all of that material. Oh, and geez. every time in the podcast you hear, there will be a link in the show notes. You should definitely dive through the show notes because no one's terminal site where he hacks, where he posts the, the we've made that. You have to find the right password to enter it. Um, to see all the files, right? All the articles that cover the different events, we make those. I hired uh, Peter Nikias from the Chicago Tribune and CNN formerly. He's a crime reporter. He is a consultant on this. And wow. so he helps us with all that material. And it's all additive to the larger, um, the larger kind of true crime narrative that we're dealing with here through this heightened lens of kind of a ultra contemporary uh, vigilante, um, urban vigilante, I should say. Uh, and then we're doing all sorts of cool viral, you know, drops with unreal engine videos and things like that. So that's the one I, I definitely always try to highlight. Um, you can go to, uh, blackmarket.la and there's a no one tab there. You can read more about it and there are links to the podcast as well as, um, the books. And then, uh, yeah, you can listen to the podcast after each issue. Uh, the trade paperback for this is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to design back matter with QR codes as well. 
um, so that more of that ancillary material is front and center in the actual, you know, the collected edition. But, uh, but in the meantime, you know, this is happening right now and it's not too late to jump on because not only are our readers trying to figure out who no one is, but so is the podcast and it's about to take some pretty exciting turns. I've read the first issue of no one. I absolutely love it. it it's such a different feel from the rest of massive. Have you listened to the podcast? Not yet. Shame on you. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely will. When does when does the first trade paperback come out? Well, it's only going to be one trade. Um, oh, so you're doing all 10 together. Yeah. And Sweet. so that'll be, it'll be out next year sometime. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I need to catch up. I have read issue one. Loved it. I need to read the rest. I will definitely be listening to the podcast as well. Kyle, again, thank you so much for joining me for this. And everyone, go out, read literally every book in the Massiverse because they're all amazing. You have Radiant Black, you have Rogue Sun, Radiant Pink, Inferno Girl Red, No One. Uh, we have the Shift uh, trade that's going to be coming out that collects those individual stories that have popped up in other places coming out very soon, as well as a Shift one shot coming soon too, right? Well, no, those are actually the same thing. So okay. the Shift, it's just a one shot. It's sized like our super massive one shots, so it could go on your bookshelf in between volumes two and three of Radiant Black, but it collects the four short stories that we did in the image anthology featuring Shift and building the beginnings of a criminal uh, criminal company, criminal startup. Those little stories ended up being more important to the Radiant Black mythology than I think I originally intended them to be because they also introduce... Um, the four other members of what became the, you know, five Yindicate, depending on, mm -hmm. <laughs> or the Fab Five, depending <laughs> on uh, which name they settle on, Sheer, Excel, Doppler, and Mecca. And we're doing a fifth story right now uh, that will come at the end of that, that tees up um, Shift's entrance into the Catalyst War. So that little, uh, you know, 50 page one shot or however long it is, will be out in December alongside uh, Radiant Black, either 28 or 29. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be coming. Uh, that'll be coming in a couple months. Sweet. Well, this has been amazing. Thanks again, Kyle. Super excited for everything coming from the Massiverse. But it's time to close the book on this interview with Kyle Higgins. So until next time, this is Lance. And this is Kyle. Reminding you to keep your friends close, but your comic books closer. Oh, did you want to say something? No, no, no. I'm just playing around with buttons. Sorry. Oh, gotcha. I was no just way. making sure this was recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're good. <laughs>